Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production, available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Attention sports fans, award-winning sports columnist and ESPN commentator Woody Page is putting down the chalkboard and picking up the mic for the Woody Page podcast on Podcast One Sportsnet. Join Woody each week as he takes on sports and pop culture with his roster of famous and even legendary guests from the world of sports and entertainment. Drop the chalk and download new episodes of the Woody Page podcast every week on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Danny LaRue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. This is a continuation of the Division Capsule series. That's what I call it. It is the off-season review and regular season preview of a single division. This one is the Southwest. Extremely eventful off-season with the Pelicans overhaul, finally getting a look at the new-look Mavericks, the Grizzlies doing... A bunch of stuff, still having a ton of guys on roster. And then, of course, the Spurs and the Rockets. And I have a great combination of guests to talk about it. Jonathan Sharks of The Ringer and Rob Mahoney of Sports Illustrated. This episode is brought to you by betonline.ag. Use that Podcast One promo code for a 50% welcome bonus. Episode runs about an hour 15. Lots of ground to cover for each of these teams. And we bounce between them, you know, kind of the, the way that these conversations usually go, where they sometimes lead us in different directions. But really love talking with the two of them and really happy with how this turned out. Hope you agree. Thank you guys so much for coming on. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. I started working on this a couple of days ago and hadn't realized just how much went on in this division because especially because it really spanned the whole active part of the offseason starting with the massive ad trade and then the draft and they had some big july 1st activity in this and then of course the rust trade which was really kind of towards the end of the real like movement part of the offseason and we'll start with with jonathan on the first question which is it, it would be a basic one except it might be tricky in this division a little bit and that's who do you think in this division got better and who do you think got worse man i mean we got to talk about houston right that's like a million dollar question like my initial read of it i feel like houston got better in the regular season but i do wonder in the playoffs if westbrook and harden is going to work at the highest level i think regular season for sure getting westbrook healthier more explosive bigger than paul i think that makes them better over the course of 82 games maybe keeps harden a little less a little healthier a little less overworked but in the playoffs does it work I'd love, i'm going to find out i'm not sure it is a really a really interesting question in the playoffs, and it also comes on the heels of, like, I, I, like you, I'm pretty confident that it will help them in the regular season. And then the other thing that I think is going to really help them in the regular season is Maury putting together a better starting point for this team. Because remember last year, like, that whole first, the whole first, like, month and a half or so, partially due to injuries and partially due to ill-fitting talent, they just, the Rockets were in a funk. And then once they got out of that, they were the Rockets again. And Harden went supernova and everything else and nearly won the MVP. But this year, you know, they decided instead of really going hard after new additions, well, of course, staying under the luxury tax, of course, they they retain they retain guys like Austin Rivers and Gerald Green and Daniel House, and so I think that's going to help in terms of the regular season because I think these guys know where they fit in, and so incorporating Russ is a huge a huge thing, obviously, and that's going to be a be a adjustment for the players for Mike D'Antoni and everything else. But I think the rest of the talent fits a lot better than it did last year. So some of that stuff will be a little bit easier. I just love that juxtaposition, too, of 
a team that, as you're saying, Danny, has a lot of continuity in a lot of ways, a lot of the most important ways in terms of the way the ways the rock, uh, the roster is built. And yet Westbrook is just this nuclear explosion in the middle of that and figuring out how he functions as an off ball player, because obviously I think he can work as the pick and roll guy or just some, you know, in some respects, the ISO guy, although he's not as successful as Harden or even Paul in that way in terms of his efficiency in recent years. But figuring out how he fits within all of this. And and that's kind of where the Rockets get tricky for me, where I, I do agree with John that I think that in the regular season, they're just there's so much to deal with that they'll probably end up being better. But they're really complicating what is kind of the most important thing they had working in their favor, which is that year to year continuity, where if they had just kept their roster from last year, I think they may have been looked on more favorably in terms of like a Western Conference contender than they are now. But with Westbrook, he just brings so many questions to the table. And and I mean, they're interesting questions and ones that as a team and, you know, from Daryl Moyer, the front office's perspective, I think are are worth investigating and asking given where the ceiling on the previous team had been. But it, I mean, they make the Rockets probably the most interesting team to watch for the early part of the season. My big question with them is like, they're going to be fine with regular season. They get to the playoffs. They got to play the Lakers. They got to play the Clippers. So who's going to guard LeBron? Who's going to guard Kawhi? Is it going to have to be P.J. Tucker? Well, Eric Gordon guarded Kawhi a little bit when those teams met previously in the playoffs to, you know, some success. I think he's he's definitely like strong enough to hold his ground in some of that. But I mean, as you're mentioning, the problem with those teams is those guys are are pretty hefty. And so I think I think they'll end up kind of splitting that duty between him and Tucker. Maybe you'll get, you know, if House is kind of improved and more comfortable in the playoffs, maybe he gets into that mix. But I mean, that's the other problem, too, with Westbrook and Harden is now you effectively, you know, even even looking past like the, the elite small forwards in the league, when you have two guards who you kind of need to, you know, reposition and hide. What does that do to your defense? You know, how many kind of reliable pieces do you really have there? And how much pressure are you putting on Tucker and Capella to really, you know, bolster that back line every time down the floor? Well, and it's it's also really interesting because last year, the biggest criticism I had of, of the Rockets, and this was more an ownership thing than a general manager thing, was that they didn't retain their forwards. And, and Bob Mute had a lost season with with the Clippers, he was just due to injury, and Ariza looked a lot worse last year than he did as a Rocket, and for for various reasons, probably including age. And it ended up not being as big of an issue in the playoffs, partially because it, the, just the the way the Warriors were structured and Kevin Durant getting hurt late in that series and everything else. But incidentally, I think this might be the year where that comes home to roost because it just so happened that you now have these two ridiculous front courts that are just lined up against you in the conference. And as as Jonathan was saying, it's basically impossible for the Rockets to make it through the West without facing those teams. Now, maybe you can pool your strengths in other places and, and get through it. But facing Kawhi and Paul George, facing LeBron and AD, like that's going to be a big ask for the way this team is constructed. I mean, I think the reality is James Harden not to play some defense. He's talking about Sir Westbrook. Like if they want to win at the very highest level, because like, you know, Paul George and Kawhi play defense. If you're trying to beat those guys, it's hard to have two guys with one lane at the end of the floor. Well, it, the other thing about that is, for the Clippers specifically, they have guys that have a history of defending James Harden. And with the Rockets, yeah, with the Rockets, you can do that idea of just like having one or two guys, and yeah, maybe they'll hunt, they'll hunt players, and that's why, like that series might be why Jamichael Green is so important for the Clippers because Zubac could be a problem, and Harrell I think could be a problem, former former Rocket Montrez Harrell, but they the Clippers also have time to figure all that kind of stuff out. And, oh, and uh, Danny, I almost forgot Pat Beverly versus Westbrook again. Oh, that yeah. would be amazing. Yeah. Oh. 
little bit of history there. Just, just, just smidge. But <laughs> yeah, I, I, and I think the Rockets, they are a, a really interesting team for this. And what I'm going to be lingering on, and it's, it's so hard, we haven't dealt with this in a while, is that it really is just about the playoffs because... I mean, we we all saw this over the course of the last few months of the season, but it's just a completely different thing. And a big a big reason why is because you can specifically tactically game plan and adjust and everything like that. And so, as Rob brought up, they're they're just going to out talent teams a lot in the regular season. They're they're a phenomenal squad of squad of players, and you can't functionally game plan for an individual strength and weaknesses beyond the basic stuff of like a player leaving a guy open in spots and things like that. Whereas when they play, not only are you facing consistently better opponents who are typically playing harder, but you're also facing opponents that either from the beginning through scouting or throughout the series through experience can can exploit what you don't do well. And that's a big challenge. Well, I love the contrast, too, in terms of Harden to Westbrook with the approaches there, where you have one guy who who really loves driving kind of headlong into the lane. Maybe he pulls up for that you know elbow or, or elbow-adjacent jumper in Westbrook. And then a guy in Harden who's so much more deliberate, who spends so much more of his time really working the first move, the first fake, and and kind of going from there. And as a defense, it's like even say you had two or three days off preceding a game against the Rockets and you're really trying to drill down and you want to make this a statement game and really figure out how you're going to defend this team. You're almost talking about two very different styles of defense where the things that work well against Russ really do not work well against James and vice versa. And not only does that really kind of strain a team in a potential playoff setting or something like that down the line, but even just like a game to game, middle of January, weeknight kind of situation, that's just a really tough thing to have to reckon with. I mean, I'm looking at their team, and it's weird because, like, Eric Gordon, Austin, remember they're probably their best perimeter defenders, and they're, like, 6'2", 6'3". So their best lineup is probably, like, Rivers, Gordon, Westbrook, Harden, Tucker, what they ran last year against Golden State. And, like, those guys are so small. Maybe they can outscore the Lakers and Clippers. I don't know. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, the thing that I'm most interested in with the Rockets this year is actually a D'Antoni thing in the regular season, and that is in the Westbrook-only minutes – how much does this look like a Russ team? You know, the breakneck transition transition play and just like basically letting Russ be Russ. And how does that, you know, like, I think this is the opportunity to be the most efficient Westbrook season of his career, possibly by a long, by a long shot, even if his threes aren't necessarily falling, just because he's also playing with way more spacing and yeah. he should be able to do it. So I'm really interested to see what is the character of this team when Harden's off the floor? Like, is it really kind of like a, a two-faced situation where they can totally shift gears and like, maybe that's even playing the right guys, you know, having some of their higher effort, you know, fast, speedier guys on the floor in, in that. And then you have guys that fit with Harden with Harden. And then in the, in the combined minutes, you play specific guys there too. Like D'Antoni, I, I'm guessing he's going to be energized by this challenge because when I've talked with him, that's kind of the way his brain works, but it's going to be important and very fascinating. Well, the other thing too, about kind of feeding into playing a D'Antoni style, playing the kind of small ball that John was talking about Maybe this is the most important application yet for the fact that Russell Russell Westbrook wants to chase rebounds because if Russell Westbrook is kind of you know rebounding like a power forward in those lineups, that could be a meaningful difference considering the rest of these guys are like six two to six four. Yeah, there's no one to steal rebounds from in this team. Plenty to go around. Yeah, that's really true. Uh, we as as I could talk about the Rockets for a week, but we should get on some of the other ones. So in terms of better or worse. I mean, the Spurs are basically the same, so I don't think we need to spend a ton of time. We'll, we'll talk about their offseason in other ways, but I think that part of it is there. 
Um, the Grizzlies, I would say they they got worse because they lost Mike Conley. You know, I, I not that I disagree with their offseason. I think I think it's good that they got worse. And then we should we can turn to the one that I think is maybe the most compelling, and it depends on to me a matter of perspective. Unless and if you guys want to argue on those last two I talked about, feel free. But the New Orleans Pelicans, because the Pelicans to me it's a matter of perspective because last year was just such a weird season in terms of injuries and the whole AD thing and him demanding a, requesting a trade, still being on the team and all that. So I could see them being better than the team they put on the floor, but the talent level is also a different question. They'll definitely win more games, I think. What did they win last year? 33 games. I would expect them to win more, if not just because they're so much deeper now. Like this team has like got like 10 NBA players where it's always been a problem in the AD era with having like six or seven guys, one of them gets hurt. You're signing guys in two-way contracts, running through like 20 players a year. This team is really deep. Yeah, I mean, it's almost the difference, to your point, Dan, in terms of like the team the Pelicans could have been versus the team they actually were. And some of that is accounting for everything that happened with AD and everything that kind of happened around him in terms of the uh, the kind of shroud that you know his trade request put around the franchise and how guys were playing with him in and out of the lineup and him bouncing back and forth. And it's like... It's hard to account for those things when you're talking about a straight like, is this team better than it used to be? And yet I I do agree with John that like this is better on paper what they have now than a 33 win team. And I think the clarity of that situation will help. I think, you know, the fact that so many of these guys who are coming from the Lakers, I think, will have a lot that they want to prove and a lot that they want to show. And, you know, maybe that could work against them in some spots if they try to do too much. But like the Pelicans just have a lot of options in terms of how their lineups are built, in terms of which guys are, are rolling or not, and how they can kind of reposition those pieces. I like what they have available. I like how they've been able to kind of combine that interest and, you know, the landing from the AD trade into, you know, building around Zion in an interesting way, really giving him a lot of the kinds of support he needs, whether it's, you know, a really competent and veteran big and Derek Favors, whether it's a guy like Drew Holiday who's going to be able to run the show but also can play off the ball. And obviously a lot of these wild card guys like Lonzo and Brandon Ingram and stuff. I think, you know, they're, they're one of the more interesting teams in the league, but I, I really am kind of bullish on their prospects. You know what's crazy? I'm looking at their roster. The only guy back from last year is basically Drew Holiday. And then off the bench, they have Miller, Darius Miller, Tuan Moore. That's about it. Everyone else, like the other top seven guys are all new. Like you didn't even mention Jay Reddick, Rob, and he's on this team also. It's crazy. Right. Well, yeah, that's also kind of like Memphis. Memphis, if you want to count it from the beginning of last season, I think they only have like two guys, like two or three. And then if, I, I think it's actually three or four. But then if you count it from, you know, later once they made the Valanciunas trade, then they have another couple. So, yeah, a lot of turnover in this. And with the with the Pels, I'm really interested in the chat. So David Griffin had a big job in front of him, and I think he did a very, a very good one balancing the near term and the long term. I have a little the only misgiving I have is that I wish they had gotten a little bit more on the forward line just because they're the most scarce thing in the league. And they didn't really do as much there. They got Ingram and he's in fascinating i mean think about how long ago his dvt thing was like that was this he totally healthy now like that's not a problem anymore i haven't heard anything definitive on it but not hearing anything further negative on it kind of makes me feel better so i don't i don't know (laughs) i don't know that he's necessarily all the way out of the woods but he's not at least deeper into the woods than at the beginning of the offseason well let me ask you guys this in terms of the pelicans if if you were alvin gentry who would you start oh man you want to have fun with this john well, I mean, obviously you're starting Drew at point guard, favorite at center. You're going to start Zion. 
I think Ingram will start too. Then it becomes down to Lonzo and Redick, and you probably need Redick shooting. And I'm not sure Redick came there not being the starter, right? He was starting in Philly for a great team. He's not going to be a bench player. So I assume it goes Drew, Redick, Ingram, Zion favors with uh, Lonzo, your sixth man. I think that's right, especially also politically. Just that has the kind of has some of the players that need to be in there. My thought for their best lineup is that I think I think Zion, especially because he benefits so much from spacing, and Derek Favors is not a floor spacer, at least not yet. That he, I think of him as a, as kind of like a hybrid five, but that he can be there defensively. Obviously, there's some limitations, but the lineup that I'm most interested in, as currently constructed, is similar to that. But it's the difference is really important. So Drew Holiday, Zion, and Ingram are all there, but Zion's Zion's playing the five, Ingram's playing the four, and then they don't have that natural three. But they have a lot of guys that are interesting if you want to go kind of small ball. Lonzo is one. Josh Hart is another, Nikhil Alexander-Walker, if he continues blowing up, Etwan Moore you could even try in that role. And so those lineups, that gets closer to like real NBA spacing. You have some really dangerous off-ball guys. Drew's going to have lots of room to operate. And I also think that lineup could be really fun for Brandon Ingram because he can he can be facing guys that he has a quickness advantage on rather than a size advantage, which I don't think he's as good at exploiting. This is going to sound kind of silly, but really the swing spot is actually Jackson Hayes the guy I drafted number eight at Texas, because he's your backup center. You're going to play favors a lot. So can they go small? Going small would be not playing a number overall pick. So I'm not sure how that's going to play out. My hope is that Gentry just tries a lot of stuff. I mean, they, they, there's just so many different options on this team, and a lot of players who are who are kind of unusual from what we've seen so far in terms of their strengths and weaknesses. So it might just be a, you know an experimentation type of thing, at least in the early going, and hey, what works, what doesn't, what players have chemistry, what players don't. It's going to be fun, though. I think they're going to have to play, they'll play crazy, crazy fast just because it gets guys more shots. Like, you got a lot of guys who want to get new contracts. You got Ingram playing for a contract. You got Lonzo coming up pretty soon. Favors will be up this offseason. So, to me, like, it could go, it could go south if they're not, like, you know, really moving the ball, getting a lot of guys playing time. You know, Josh Hart's going to want to play. Like, that to me is interesting, too. They have almost too many good players. Yeah, I mean, how often is it that you a team this early on in the process needs to make a consolidation trade? And I'm not saying they need to make it like today, but maybe by February they'll have figured some of this stuff out. And no, I'll save I'll save that for a little bit later. Uh, I have I have another thought on that. John led me into it, but I kind of want to talk about it when we talk about the AD trade. The last team that we haven't discussed in terms of this kind of broad picture stuff, better or worse, is Dallas. I mean, Dallas got better partially because one of their best players didn't play at all last year, and now he's going to play, and that's Kristaps Porzingis. But they also got a little bit deeper, and hopefully they can be healthier. So any any disagreements that they're going to be better? None at all. And, you know, I like kind of what they're doing. Considering the circumstances at the point, the idea of having Dalon Wright come in, that you can run Seth Curry there a little bit if you want more of a pure offense uh, kind of look for them. It's just guys like Doncic are, are difficult to build around in that regard, and there are only so many kind of pat Beverly's around the league that I like that they're making plays with, you know, relatively younger guys who could kind of fit uh, specific moment to moment needs. And I guess we'll kind of see how it goes. I mean, their their center rotation is going to be a little weird, especially because it seems like they really want to play Chris Stapps at the four primarily. Uh, and so, you know, how he ends up fitting into that, how do you know Dwight Powell ends up playing next season is going to be unexpectedly kind of crucial. Uh, and you know Maxi Kleba is great, but it, it just depends on how they who they want to play where. Ultimately, I think they're going to be a better team. Uh, Whether they're going to be better enough to you know really get into that playoff race, which is looking very very crowded, is kind of another question though. 
I do think Wright and Curry were very underrated um, signings, especially with the fit. Like, you give, Seth Curry is a ridiculously good shooter. Playing with Luke will be a lot. He'll score a lot of points. And then Wright's the perfect defender to play with Luka, too. I mean, I think those two, they got them up for like $50 million total or 65 or something. Like, something pretty small. I was two of the, biggest, the best value signs of the offseason. Plus, I have full confidence that Carlisle is going to use them well. Like, you know, there are certain teams where if they had, you know, this collection of guards and also having to play them with a ball-dominant guy who can defend threes, you know, that that would be a big problem with Berea presumably coming back and Brunson having such a nice rookie year, Hardaway Jr. And Carlisle, that's something he can handle. Like, they, they can do this either through, like, having the Energizer Bunny three-guard bench lineups playing two guards with like two two different kind of guys with Luca. It's going to it's going to be fun and I I think that I would have less faith in this working out with somebody else, but that's also why, you know, a good GM knows how to how to choose players that make sense with where they're going and I think that Dallas even though I wish they had gotten more from the cap space and everything that they had, that they did end up with things that made sense. Well, I think in Curry's case too, it helps that we've already seen it go well. True. We've already we've already seen how his relationship with Carlisle can work and you know, Luca's obviously a different variable in that. But I think the Mavs are very good at getting a lot out of that specific kind of player, like a kind of squirrely good, you know, good shooter who can work the pick and roll like that is that's a guy who can be really successful for the Mavs. And so, you know, that you could have that in addition to Luka and at the same time be a guy who is just a a dead eye spot up shooter, one of the better better options for that in the league. Um, there are a lot of defensive deficiencies there. There's some questions in terms of how much playmaking you really want to put on Luca's shoulders to get everyone else involved. But I really like that kind of specific synergy. And uh, as John mentioned, Dale on right is just, you know, a really great kind of defensive counterpoint to that. One thing I wanted to ask you guys, how much do you think Seth Curry could score in Dallas? So I'm looking at his numbers. Per 36, he's averaged uh, 16 points a game in the last three years. And he's never had a usage rating higher than 20. But this is the guy, I mean, he can obviously really, really shoot it. He can get his own shot. He can make the extra pass. He can be some left playmaker. For me, could he get to like 17, 18 points a game? That's too high for a bench guy, but I feel like he could score a ton this year in Dallas. I think the question with him is always because of his size, like how often can he really get to his shot if you are like funneling possessions to him? I think that's why he ends up being kind of more of an occasional scorer for a lot of teams. Uh, Just because, you know, at that size, if you're not incredibly fast or if your shot release or you don't have like a, you know, a James Harden level step back or some kind of unique mechanism to get off a shot, I think it's just tough to get up a ton of offense. Mm -hmm. Well, and the other part of it, as, as you were talking about in terms of his fit with Luca, which I, I genuinely like as well is that typically the less time you spend on ball the harder it is to get your usage rate really up like Danny Green is a great example of this so Danny Green in this kind of the stage of his career he's never had a usage rate over 18 percent and yeah Seth Curry way better with the ball in his hands than Danny Green but it's just you have fewer opportunities and it also depends on who Seth plays with if he's playing with Luca and Porzingis He'll be a really useful safety valve, but he's a safety valve. And so that's it brings value. It actually will make life easier on, on Luca and on Porzingis, but it's a little bit different. So I think that he'll be variable, which is actually a good thing for, for Dallas to an extent, because then it's a player who can, when he's hot, he can shoot. And when he's not, you can they still have to defend him and other guys will get those opportunities. Because I look at him as kind of like the miss as the X factor. Because to me, this team is not going to play great defense. And he's probably their best bet to be the third scorer. So to me, like if this team's going to compete for the playoff spot, it's going to have to be Seth Curry. 
so here's a question for both of you. I don't want to go starting five. I want to go, what What do you think is the best five for Dallas with this roster? Because I have like five different ideas, one of which I kind of like better. I think it's Wright, Curry, Doncic, Porzingis, Kleba. I think that would be, in terms of the way all the pieces fit together, I think that makes the most sense to me. Uh, I mean, I could see, you know, getting Finney Smith in there if you need a little bit more length or perimeter defense or something like that. But balance offense to defense and especially trying to account for this, all the spacing that you want, I feel like those are the five that, that to me, would you know produce the best result. Yeah, that sounds right to me. For, for me, the the big swing, the swing part would be, and I think would just be matchup dependent, would be Finney Smith and DeLon Wright. It's just, who do you need to defend? Do you need, is it more of a guard that you need to have, or is it more of a forward? And then, and they can, and, and Wright, I'm going to be so fascinated to see what his, what his offensive role is here, because who he plays with is really important. I, either he can be kind of that, a little bit of a transition dynamo. There were times in Toronto that I really liked that. But then if, if teams don't respect his jump shot and he's playing off ball a lot, then that can be a problem. So yeah, I, th- I think that's pretty close to it. But they can do so many different things as well. I mean, they have Boban. They can do some different stuff there. Powell is is a trademark Carlisle rim running center. But I just I just don't love Dwight Powell, so he's not going to be a part of my best five. So you have all that. We we could transition into. Uh, so we've already talked about like a lot of the moves and and all that. But there there are kind of two that I want to start with, and then if there are any other smaller ones, we can get into that and. Let's let's start with the AD trade. Only one of the two teams in the Anthony Davis trade was in this division, so we can talk about it from the Pelicans' perspective. And like overall return, we can talk about that too. But what I think is the most compelling element of this, and it's something that Jonathan got at before, and this is what I said I was going to get back to, is the idea that they got these talented young players from the Lakers. And I've been a fan of all of them at different points in their career. But because they've been in the league a couple of years, they're a lot closer to restricted free agency, extension eligibility, and actually getting paid. And so I think that brings a, a, an important element to this team where David Griffin's going to have to make some decisions pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, I have no idea what Ingram's market would be right now, given with his health stuff. I mean, right? Like, he's up for extension, I think, right now. How, how can you decide what to get? I'm not even sure. And, you know, that's not even really touching just how polarizing his game can be, even for people within the same organization. Like, you, you go into any one front office, and I think you'll find a really wide diversity of opinion on Ingram, which is the kind of thing that makes him very, very tough to market. Because if the right voice has the right authority across the league, he could get some big offers. And if not, then he could have a really underwhelming market. He's... He's just a guy who's very difficult to price in that regard. And in the same way, very difficult as the Pelicans to say, this is the kind of fixture we want to stake our franchise to alongside Zion if we want to really commit a lot of big money to him. I guess they'll play it out because – but I would assume it was through so he'd get a lot of offers given how weak the free agent class is going to be next summer. Yeah, there, there's a very real risk there. And the Pelicans also – and this is why I like, really like that part of the trade from their perspective is there is a distinct chance that those Lakers guys are undervalued assets, partially because they haven't stayed healthy and they were in such a weird kind of weird overall mix and so now hopefully with more shooting and depending if they can get separated a little bit from each other in the rotation I think Josh Hart also just needs a chance I don't know if he'll get it because he ended up on a team that is shockingly deep but I think that there's that other part of the argument where even if Lonzo you know like it isn't perfect maybe if he's best coming off the bench on this team that his stock is still higher at the trade deadline at the end of next year than it was when the Pelicans acquired him. 
I think that's likely. And, you know, if only because, as you mentioned, just kind of the complexion of this roster, the pace that they're likely to play at, the other kinds of fixtures around him where, you know, Lonzo's ability to kind of augment plays, to make quick decisions, to make the extra pass, I think that really bodes well for this team where I don't think he's necessarily, you know, even if you put him on the second unit, I don't see him as like, a big pick and roll lob partner with Jackson Hayes or something like that. I see him as more of kind of a fill in guard who, who, you know, maybe has some similarities with Alexander Walker in a lot of ways, uh, as far as like just kind of adding an interesting wrinkle to otherwise productive lineups. And I think the Pelicans have enough other people and another, uh, enough other scores to really make use of a player like that. Okay. This team is just so interesting because we haven't talked about Zion yet, right? Whoops. Like, there's Who? so much going on. <laughs> <laughs> well, and Zion is another player with extremely unusual skills. I mean, I what shocked me because I you know watched bits and pieces of Duke games, and I actually saw Zion in person going back to when he was 16. And what stunned me watching the extended you know synergy and full games and everything like that was just how talented he was with the ball in his hands and how I had been so worried about his jump shot, and I am still worried about his jump shot. Like that's just it's just something that I, I'm, I don't consider a strength right now and it could get there but as we know that just depends like we'll, we'll see where we we'll see where he is in three years but that is for a player his with his size and his physical ability the, the way that he can penetrate the way that he can pass and you it's kind of like in a weird way he, do, he doesn't have the same skills but it's kind of like Ben Simmons where all of these things that we talk about his limitations where you can't they, they matter a lot less when he's handling the ball because in, especially in Zion's case, you can't give him space because if you give him space, he's just going to roll you over. He's just like it's more like Giannis in that way. So how does how does Gentry use that as well? Because I, it, it has it's flown under the radar a little bit, but like I think there's a little bit more of a Zion Lonzo conflict in the sense that both those guys are much better on ball than off ball. They might end up being staggered just because Drew Holiday and JJ Redick exist, but it's another thing, especially with Brandon Ingram too, who I think is better on ball than off ball, that is going to make this a hard ecosystem to figure out. Well, those two too, Lonzo and Zion, are also kind of at the center of you know spacing is kind of the battleground for the Pelicans where if you're going to play favors at center and if you're going to play Zion on the four, anytime those two are on the floor with Lonzo and even with Brandon Ingram, who's not exactly a knockdown shooter himself, is going to really kind of stress test things in terms of the spacing of those lineups. And so you're really going to see, you know, how impactful is having, you know, just J.J. Redick on the floor as your dead eye shooter or whether it's Holiday and Hart together or you're getting, you know, it, it's really tough in the modern NBA to run a highly efficient offense with only two you know, competent plus level three point shooters on the floor. And so when you're getting into that space where you're really relying on speed to make up for that, whether it's getting on transition, whether it's just the quickness of your actions and the tempo of your offense, uh, it, it really puts a lot of pressure on you to succeed in that way because you don't have a lot of alternatives when things slow down. And so seeing that kind of contrast for the Pelicans, I think is going to be something to watch and especially how they go about building their lineups, knowing that they really want to play Zion in a particular role. Uh, you know, as you know, even as a rookie, I think it, it makes sense to kind of slow play him in that way. Uh, but it does create some interesting problems for the Pelicans otherwise. Yeah, it's funny thinking about them. Like they're going to have to win playing defense and like running. It's like they're like it's like a weird like written grind Grizzlies thing where like you play great defense but you try to play like a hundred percent of the game because they're going to have to get stops on transition because they're not going to. It's going to be hard in half court. And I do think Zion could help them more on defense as a rookie than as an offense because he's actually a pretty good defensive player. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I, I I saw some some tools there that were that were fascinating, and I mean he's just when you think about 
about his athleticism and he's con- widely considered like a really good kid with his work ethic and everything else. So yeah, you could see you could see that fitting in together. And I like that this New Orleans team just has so many guys because hopefully, as I said, it's an experimentation season and they try out different things. Maybe And, and while you don't want to say anything that a 19, 20-year-old does is that that's just who they're going to be long-term, getting a better sense of, okay, is he better as a help defender? Is he better as a rim protector? How does he do defending the pick and roll? And then you use the information gleaned from that and the equivalent for guys like Ingram and Nikhil Alexander-Walker and Jackson Hayes, and then you go, okay, this is what we know. How do we build a team around this? And it's going to take some time, but at least they have a, a really interesting starting point, and that's the other part of the AD trade is that they are now extremely heavily invested in the Lakers long term. And, you know, in the near term, I think the Lakers will be very good. But there's a chance that, especially as LeBron ages, that I don't think they ever get bad, assuming Anthony Davis resigns. But that they're, you know, that that these aren't like 25 to 30 picks. Maybe they're more like 20 to 25. And in that case, you know, that's okay. That's, that's, it's it's, yeah, it's I, something to have. I wonder if these picks end up getting traded. Like if the perceived, the perceived value of them is higher than they end up being. Maybe you try to use them like next summer when they're still so far in the future. And it's like, they could be anything if it's a lottery ticket. Maybe like you kind of move back in like in two years from now instead of waiting for them to come true. Well, there's a there's an idea out there. I try to remember this. This came up on Real Jam Radio at some point. That my 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 current theory is, you know, unless something really dramatic changes, that a lot of these picks peak in value a year before they're actually made. A great example of this is the the Nets pick in the Kyrie Irving trade because at that point there was this idea oh man look it could be it could be anything it could be a really high pick and then also unprotected ones are a little bit different just because the incentives are are just not there so the nets you know they might as well just push towards the finish line and everything else like that but i think you see that throughout where you want some flexibility with the pick unless the team is just way better and then maybe you want the the the, the upside risk of this they get, they get hurt or something like that but in a lot of those circumstances, I think it's smart to move the pick a little bit early, especially if that kind of squares up the timeline a little bit, which it could with the Pelicans. We just don't know yet. I'd love for them to go after someone like Miles Turner. Like, I don't know how it works out in Indiana with him and Sabonis, but like, get a guy like that Zion. I think then you have all, all the pieces you need almost. Well, the one other kind of part of their the Pelicans timeline that ties in with this, I talked about how they have to make decisions quickly on Ball and Ingram and Josh Hart, is that I think... They're kind of on a similar timeline with Drew. Now, Drew Holiday is under contract for the next two seasons and then has a player option for 21-22. But I think they just need to figure out what kind of team they are because if if they're if it's going to take a little while longer, which it very well might, like this, they might just be so young, and especially because Favors is probably a rental, they could resign him with Bird Rights, but we'll see, that maybe they just think, okay, this is more of a two- or a three-year rebuild and just maximize what they can get for Drew and that could be fueled by Lonzo being awesome, or it could just be, hey, we might as well get some value for this guy while we still have him. Yeah, I mean, those are tough decisions to make, especially with a guy like Drew, who you could see being useful in various stages of, of team development. You could see him staying in New Orleans for a really long time, if that kind of makes sense with the roster that they're building. And yet, I think you're right that you know there are only going to be so many windows to take swings on trades like that or player acquisitions like that. And Drew, in a couple of years, is one of those tickets. And otherwise, especially if you're if you're recommitting to Ingram, if you're recommitting to Ball, if you're signing some of these extensions or re-signing some of these young players, uh, the finances are only going to get tighter, and those cap windows are only going to get tighter. The other 
trade, we already talked about the fit on the court, so it's more just the asset play here. Was The other huge one was the Russell Westbrook trade. And so to walk, to walk through the terms again, that was Russell Westbrook for Chris Paul and the Rockets firsts in 21, 24, I believe 25 as well. And then they have um, a couple of pick swaps. Oh no, the 26 one is included as well. It's a lot, it's a lot of, oh no, it, it, I think it's a pick from somebody else in 25. Um, but anyway, it's a, a series of first round picks and a series of swaps. So how are you guys feeling about that as the return for making the Westbrook Paul swap? I mean, I think they had to do it given whatever's going on with Chris Paul and James Harden. I think they had to make some kind of move now, as you're saying, but like refreshing the asset because there's just no way Chris Paul is going to be able to be traded for anything a year from now. Whereas maybe if Westbrook rebounds, you've rebounded his value. doesn't feel hard and you can make another move down the line. But I think if they had kept the team together with Paul and Harden, it reminded me a little bit of uh, Miami at the end when it was Wade and LeBron. And like Wade's getting older and older and LeBron's doing more and more work. I feel like that would happen with Harden and Paul over the next year or two. And that wouldn't have worked. Harden would have gotten tired of that eventually. So I think he had to do something. It was a lot to give up, but I think they're kind of backed into a corner. They have no real choice. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of focus on that relationship and the tensions there between Harden and Paul. And I think that's understandable given, you know, some of the visible flare-ups and some of the reporting that people would kind of center in on that. To me, it's more about what John's saying, which is, Next year, it only gets tougher. Trading Paul on a $41 million contract is only going to be tougher. And you don't have to make this trade necessarily, but there are really only so many options available to you when you're looking to move deals that are this big. And for players, you know, for veteran players of this particular kind, you're looking for a very niche market. And I think the Thunder were in a position to participate in that. And Westbrook was a guy who could, you know, keep James Harden happy and is a guy who he wants to play with. And if he's signing off or pushing for this, you know, the Rockets are a team that really empowers their stars and and has have really empowered Harden to play a more active role in their organization. And that's just kind of part of the philosophy that they work with. And so if you're going to operate in that way, you kind of have to follow it through and you kind of have to commit to that ideal. And Westbrook is kind of a byproduct of that. It, it's also a great example of why, like when I, I don't, I don't think of trades, you know, from a collective perspective. I think of it separately for each team because I think it's better. The trade is better for Oklahoma City than it is for Houston just because the margin between those two matters less to them. So they got paid a premium that they, that didn't matter as much. And that's something you look for. But that doesn't mean it was bad for the Rockets. And I think the most like the, the salient element for me here, and this is something that took me a while to kind of get to with this trade is that after the frustrations the last couple of years, the Rockets have been an immensely talented team. You, there's a very good argument that they were a Chris Paul injury away from winning a title a couple of years ago. But they also, I think they needed more variance. I, I think this was a team, you, you know, if they had just run it back, they would have been facing some of these really good squads. They would have been out-talented. And so even though there's a chance that this totally backfires, there's also a chance that Westbrook, that it totally works and that Westbrook elevates them to a level. Westbrook is so much more unguardable than Chris Paul, especially when you factor in how aging is going to affect them over the next couple of years. And so I think the Rockets taking a bite at that is is a really smart thing, especially when you consider that the point that you guys brought up before, which is just that there aren't that many ways to overhaul this roster when they don't have that many high-priced players and the other high-priced players, they weren't, weren't really changing the character. You know, so like they weren't going to trade James Harden. Capella doesn't make that much money. You know, the guys like Eric Gordon and all that aren't going to do it. So really it was how can we improve the team 
by moving Chris Paul, and this is a, a reasonable way to do that. And I do think gambling on a Westbrook leaving OKC is, I mean, it makes sense. Like, there could not have been a worse fit in terms of let's play Westbrook with absolutely no shooting around him ever. With, like, these massive lineups where he has no space on the floor. He's driving the three or four guys constantly. Like, that clearly had run its course. And I think getting him their new system at this stage of his career, it really might backfire, but there's also an argument that could really, really work. Yeah, I mean, Danny used the phrase refreshing the asset in terms of the Paul Westbrook transition, but I think there's a refreshing aspect to the way Westbrook plays. And, you know, he is a bullheaded guy in a lot of ways and probably stuck in some of the patterns of his play. But I think even if he plays the exact same way he's always played, just by virtue of having a different kind of offense oriented around him, that he is in a position to have a different kind of season and a different kind of effect on the game. Because players who play with that kind of energy and that kind of pace when surrounded by spacing, we've seen time and time again, can just really exact a toll on a defense that's hard to counter. I can tell you this, he's not going to play with someone like Andre Robertson to get in Houston. Like He's always going to be in space playing for Daryl Morey. Right, and and we've seen those Thunder stars, even though they had success together, to be damn sure. I mean, making the finals when they were young, and then Westbrook and Durant together making the conference finals, and I would argue probably should have won a title. They've had success when they've left as well, and some of that is getting the improved spacing. I mean, also benefiting from him going to a a creative, talented coach, I think will will be exciting. And now how much... I, I like the idea of, I've talked about this before with Andrew Wiggins, the idea of finding out like really what a guy's about, you know? So like if, if Russ, if, if Russ is Russ and you can't, if he can't really change his stripes or maybe he can, I think that there is a little bit more there than some people think. Yeah. And I think too, like the personality aspect of it, why would he change an OKC? He wanted an MVP. He was a superstar. He had the whole finish run doing it on his whim. Like why would he change that scenario? A lot of times for guys to change, they got to leave where they were and go somewhere else. And that kind of is like an impetus to do new things. Plenty more to talk about with Rob and Jonathan, but first a message from betonline.ag. Are we ready for some football? College football is here and there are some big matchups this week. The NFL preseason has its last week before the start of the regular season and Major League Baseball continues to heat up. There's only one place that has you covered, one place we trust, betonline.ag. Sign up today for a free account at betonline.ag and use that promo code PODCAST1 for your 50% welcome bonus. One of the things I really enjoy about college football is that there are almost always some big matchups on the opening weekend beyond just being thirsty for any real action in college football. Oregon-Auburn is going to be great. Utah-BYU as a as a Pac-12 guy will be interesting. Houston-Oklahoma, Fresno State-USC, just a lot going on. And if you're into the NFL preseason, definitely have some of that to go. Lots of you know roster spot matchups and all that kind of stuff, including Pittsburgh-Carolina, Kansas City-Green Bay. And then getting close to the pennant race, you know, going to turn over into September in a couple days and have the wild cards going back and just just going at it in both leagues and also St. Louis, Chicago for the NL Central baseball games every day. So you can always check something out. Don't sit on the sidelines anymore. Get in on the action. And don't forget to use that podcast one promo code to receive a 50% welcome bonus with college football, NFL preseason and MLB going on. Get in on all the action at betonline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. So briefly, I'll open the floor to you guys. I mean, there are so many other things that happen in this division kind of transactionally. If there's any other movie you want to talk about or we can just move on to, to newcomers and rookies. But if there is anything else that you'd like, hey, we should talk about that for a couple of minutes with these teams because, as I said, so much happened. Okay, I've got like a twist on that. 
So I'm looking at the Spurs. I feel like essentially getting DeJounte Murray back as a transaction because he didn't play for them last year. And I think he really changes their team a lot. I'm fascinated to see how it looks to him and DeMar DeRozan. Because basically DeRozan played point last year. So how do y'all see that playing out this season? I don't love it. I mean, especially, you know, when you're looking at fitting Derek White in there too. And him, he and Murray are kind of their own balancing act in terms of how you want to play those guys together and off one another. And the fact that you have DeRozan, who I think did a pretty admirable job, you know, kind of running point, as John said, last year for them and managing that kind of role as best he could. Uh, but when you have three guys who are kind of operating within similar spaces and similar limitations, it, it just feels like it's going to be really crowded to me in a way that I think the Spurs were kind of improbably efficient last year in terms of their offense. And even though they're getting this big piece back and one of their best players back, certainly one of their best defenders back, I, I see things getting a lot more complicated for them. It also is and just, you've got LaMarcus and Rudy Gay, too. Yeah. There's so many guys going to play in that 15-footer inch. Well, and I don't think he's going to necessarily be a part of the rotation at full strength, but when I watched Lonnie Walker in Summer League, another guy who was better with the ball in his hands than without him. So, I mean, it's, it's going to be a, a real challenge for Pop to, to kind of, again, we, it's kind of like we talked about with the Pels, where figuring out the ecosystem, which guys fit together, which guys do not, and... The the kind of the, the fragile part of I, – I mean, their offense just confounded me the entire season. And they did have really talented players taking the shots. You know, they had this just totally atypical in the modern NBA shot distribution, and it largely worked well for them, also partially because they never turned the ball over. And, you know, parts of that, maybe even most of that, can continue. But it's different when you try kind of change out the point guard situation, you add DeJounte in. And so my instinct is that they're going to be better defensively and that they'll have some stronger moments. And, like, DeJounte can just shut guys down. I mean, I can... I don't think I did all uh, did did all defensive teams that year, but he would have been on on my team. He was just yeah, awesome. he was great, awesome defensively, and that gives the Spurs something that they didn't have last year. But I don't know that that like transforms them from into like a whole different caliber of defense. Usually, point guards don't do that. One other the addition that oh, sorry, go ahead. no, go ahead. Go ahead. I was I was going to shift topics, so keep going. Okay. The thing that's fascinating for the Spurs is, like, I feel like you're going to have to play smaller. You're going to have to play Mills and Forbes together, Bellinelli. And Pop loves playing those bigger lineups. Like, well, how much do they play LaMarcus at the five? He might have to just get some kind of space on the floor. Because if he plays LaMarcus and Pirtle with, like, White, Murray, and DeRozan, how can they – it's going to be, like, no space whatsoever. I mean, it sounds like what we're finding throughout this – this may be, like, the three-guard lineup division where all of these teams are kind of helped in some way. By throwing another shooter, another playmaker out there on the floor, I think the Spurs are probably no exception to that. Well, the corollary to that is this is the division that becomes it because there aren't that many bigs that can shoot in this division. There are definitely some. I mean, Porzingis is the most obvious, and that's but that Dallas just has it out of personnel. But it it is such a huge advantage when you don't need all of your guards to shoot, and that's where the Spurs might run into problems. Oh, well, along, one other oh, oh. one other brief thing. Oh no, I, Rob, you were going to say something. Well, along the lines of bigs who can shoot, I mean, one other kind of signing that caught my my eye was Anthony Bennett signing with the Rockets, where a guy who, you know, in talking to some people around the league, his name would come up as, you know, a curiosity and wondering, you know, a guy who has basically completely remade his game since leaving the NBA as a three-point shooter and really a spot-up guy uh, who could be an interesting stretch four candidate and wondering if he was going to get another chance, where he was going to land. And of all the teams he could possibly land with, I think the Rockets are, are the best case scenario of a team that he won't be asked to do too much, who can really park himself in the corner, who you know could potentially be mobile enough to at least be a factor defensively if he's engaged in the right way and involved in the right way. You know, definitely more of a fringe addition 
but you know when we're talking about Russell Westbrook and some in the AD trade and some of these bigger moves, but the kind of addition that in the way that you know House or Gary Clark or these guys have had little moments for the Rockets for a couple weeks or a month at a time, I could see Bennett kind of working his way into the rotation and being you know a little better than even they might expect. And I think it's worth a good point about House and Clark, like. Houston's the one like contender that'll play an undrafted rookie or a guy off the fringes. Like they're gonna give everyone a chance to play. A lot of teams, a guy like Ben would go there, he'd be like behind two veterans and like he had no chance of ever playing. But in Houston, they're gonna play him to see if he has anything. Yeah, I'd love to see Bennett succeed. I think that is the best chance for it to happen. So I'm excited about that. The other one that I wanted to mention just briefly is the bizarre sequence that happened in San Antonio where they brought in Damari Carroll, was very excited about that. They needed another defensive forward, and I thought Carroll had a nice year for Brooklyn. And then it looked like they were also going to get Marcus Morris, you know, at the cost of losing Davis Bertans, which sucks because I'm a big fan of Davis Bertans. But then because Morris backed out after they had already made the trade to open up the spot, they end up not basically instead it becomes Carroll for Bertans instead of Carroll and Bertans or Morris. And it's not a huge deal because like those are more depth pieces for the Spurs. But I do think that it's it's a lot less inspiring than where they looked like they were going to be. Well, especially when we talk so much about their spacing issues. And those are guys who, if you're going to play them at the four, are kind of credible spacers, especially Bertans. Yeah, it just cracked me up. Pop was like, Bertans, what are you doing shooting threes? We shoot 20-footers here. Like, no. <laughs> we need more guys who can dribble in the mid-range jump shots on this team. And let them get Trey Lyles, who I always thought was talented. Who knows how to play for them, but he's a big man who can theoretically shoot it. Might have to play a role for him this season. I don't think we need to dwell on best newcomer. We've already talked about a lot of these guys for a while. Uh, so instead, I th- the normal question here is rookie you're most excited to see, but seemingly like almost all of the exciting rookies are in this division. So you can give a couple, but just the players that you're most interested in seeing in NBA for, not who you think is going to be best in the near term or the long term, but just who you're excited to see play in real NBA games. Yeah, I mean, I'll just go since we haven't talked about them yet. We'll talk, I'll throw in Memphis. I think they're going to be really bad this year, but they've got two rookies in John Morant and Brandon Clark, who I really like. And I think they are like the perfect pieces with Jaron Jackson. So, yeah, I mean, Ja will probably, I imagine, will have bigger stats than Zion this year because he'll have the ball in his hands all the time. And I think John Morant to Jaron Jackson pick and rolls. And then you have Jaron Jackson pacing the floor for John Morant to Brandon Clark pick and rolls. That's going to be really fun to watch. That's going to be a really fun young team that probably doesn't want to win many games this year, but they're going to be really exciting. Memphis is another one of those teams, too, who in the New Orleans vein, like, has a lot of guys like on their depth chart. There's just a lot of pieces they're going to need to figure out how to fit together. You know, they pick up Josh Jackson. They're, you know, fitting in Jay Crowder. They have Solomon Hill randomly. Like there's a lot of pieces that could fit in in, in interesting spots. Like, again, I don't think they're necessarily going to be a good team and certainly not as good without Mike Conley. But, you know, you have Jackson and you have Ja and how everything else fits is, is going to be pretty fluid. And I mean, they, they they certainly have their hands full in terms of figuring all that out. Well, I mean, beyond those. They have Jake Crowder and Iguodala <laughs> for now. I was yeah. going to say, they're probably going to get traded, though, by the yeah. deadline. I, I, w- I wouldn't be surprised if one or both of them got traded before the start of the season, too, just because most teams would rather have those guys for the whole season rather than part of a season. So a pragmatic front office would probably do that. Now, teams usually like what they have at the beginning of the year, so it might take some time. But, I mean, well, it's going it's to be fascinating, and I, I loved the jaw film. Like, he was one of the, one of my favorite players to watch over the last few years, creative passer, dynamic with the ball in his hands, like his handle, and... 
his jump shot is is intriguing. You know, I, I want to see where it goes from here. And yeah, I mean, the ecosystem there. Brandon Clark was a, not somebody I got to watch film on, but was awesome in summer league. And I don't know exactly yet what his role is on a on a good team, much less this team. But I'm going to be really excited to see it. And with just this many guys, how their coaching staff manages this. I mean, especially when you consider that there aren't usually many teams like this where their best players and their their best players just pretty clearly are not going to be on the team for a long time. So, like, how do you balance that? Like, let's say Iguodala starts the season on the Grizzlies. How many minutes a game are you playing him? Because you don't want him to get hurt, and you want him to mentor your guys, but also, like, he can help for sure. Well, I mean, he probably wouldn't play much either for them, I don't, I don't imagine. Like, he'll probably have you playing, like, 10 minutes a game. Well, and the question of how much him helping is really a good thing versus getting opportunities for younger guys, whether it's, you know, looking at your future lottery position. Like, I mean, I, I think there's absolutely value in having Iguodala on the floor, especially given, you know, we're not just talking about any veteran. We're talking about really one of the smartest players in the league and a guy who has been willing to mentor some younger players in his previous stops, including the Warriors. Uh, having that on the floor is valuable, but also like you want to see what you have in a lot of these other guys and how they might fit together. I mean, we haven't even talked about Grayson Allen and Tyus Jones who are in this mix as well. Like they, they just have a lot of bodies. And I would say too, I might push back and Iguodala is their best player. Like I think Jaron Jackson could be really good next season. So I went back and watched some of the film for Arthur about the Grizzlies. I didn't realize how good an isolation scorer he was. He was in the 72nd percentile ISO scores. He can kind of put the ball on the floor for a 11 guy. And he can shoot off the dribble, too. Like, this is a guy, he really didn't get a chance to put a lot of stats last season. But I think his skill set in a bigger role could really explode this year. Yeah, he, he is a more talented guy than I think some people think. And just because a player isn't the like the lead guy offensively, sometimes those other skills get pushed, get pushed to the perimeter. But I think that it's important to consider that as well and, and what he could be. I'm a little bit residually frustrated because I think his Jackson's best position is at center. And, you know, the Valanciunas contract is fine. It's I have nothing against it. It's a reasonable number. Memphis isn't really a cap space team. It's nothing wrong with that. I'm just, my hope is just that we get to actually see Jaron Jackson Jr. play center and some of these, you know, maybe not full on five out lineups, but four and a half out, something like that, because that would be really, really fun. I think he will because the only that's on the roster is Miles Plumley. He's not going to play very much. So they're a mess behind Valanciunas for Jackson, I think. Yeah, that might be the way the way they make it work, and and I mean Brandon Clark, and if it's Brandon Clark and Jaron Jackson, if they're the four and the five, then it, that should work out pretty well. That'd be fun. Well, there are a couple other rookies we should mention. Um, we talked a little bit about Jackson Hayes in Texas. I, I, so with the Pelicans, it's gonna be weird to figure out what his rotation is gonna be. And talented guy though, I I I loved watching him more at summer league than I expected. You know, like I'm openly a little bit dubious of centers who have limited shooting, but he's bouncy. He you see his athleticism make a difference on the floor more often than I thought it might. And I mean, he was ridiculously efficient at, at UT as well. So that's not necessarily a surprise. And then also, you know, Nikhil Alexander-Walker was one of my single favorite players for all of summer league. And he, again, might not have the same opportunity because of the way this Pels team is structured, but it's going to be exciting to see him for sure. Yeah, I like those guys in the sense that if they do play, it will almost certainly because they're really impressing the Pelicans internally in terms of what they're doing. Because it, it seemed like New Orleans was relatively pleased with what they got out of Jaleel Okafor during his stop with them last season. So you could see him maybe start the season as the backup five behind Favors. And then we already talked about maybe Zion you know, gets into some minutes at the five. Hayes, I think, would really have to earn a spot 
and and same with Alexander Walker, where you know you're talking about a pretty a pretty deep backcourt and wing rotation where you might already have to kind of move some pieces around to make minutes for everybody. And so I think if they get on the floor and are making you know playing kind of meaningful meaningful minutes and playing a significant role, uh, I think that in itself is a pretty good sign of their progress just from coming into the NBA until that point. Does anybody? Uh, I mean, we all we were all at summer league and watching. Did, it, did any of you guys have strong opinions on Sabonich or Kelton Johnson, the two main guys for San Antonio? Admittedly, I didn't see a lot of them there. Not really. I don't think they'll play much this year, anyways. I a great, a great off. point. Yeah, I mean, especially because San Antonio just they have so many guys right now, even without the Bertans Morris player that that and and you know rookies, especially rookies taken in the late first, are rarely value adds. So I can't imagine unless they really impress. Like it's kind of in a way paralleling what Rob said about the Pelicans guys is that they they would earn their spot in the rotation if they get there. And I didn't really see enough to to expect that at this point. I'd love to be surprised. It's always an exciting thing. We could transition. Yeah, hard to imagine. With like Lonnie Walker probably can't even play for them next year. Like how how it's looking right now, Walker's probably out of the rotation, right? So at, at least when they're healthy, yeah. I mean, there's there's so many guys. This is a shockingly deep division. Well, yeah, it's, it's sure. also it's also a reminder of that maybe I, I don't know that maybe we're kind of getting closer to expansion. And one of the big things with that is just like, are there more rotation guys in the league, caliber players, than there are slots? And you know, some teams that's absolutely not true. But a lot of the teams in this division maybe put a little weight on that, even though spreading out the stars even more would be suboptimal. Yeah, I think like if you look at New Orleans, that's an example of a team that's really not had enough NBA players in the rotation over the last three or four years and that's really held them back and like well see, I think that'll be interesting because you can see the value of adding like three or four more NBA guys with that your rotation so we can jump into the the regular season preview part of it and we'll start with Rob on this it's it's this division is a really challenging one and it's ranking the teams one to five for the nineteen twenty season. I would prefer it in terms of regular season record, but if you want to use a different rationale, just say what it is and you can use that and have fun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I want regular season record as well. I think the Rockets are the clear number one and the Grizzlies the clear number five. The question is how you yeah. want to orient the two, three, four. For me, I see it Pelicans, Spurs, Mavs. Uh, I think the Spurs, I could see them dropping a little bit just given some of the things we've talked about in terms of the fall off in their offense, even if, you know, getting Murray back defensively does pick them up a little bit. I just think they have for a team that isn't like super talented, they have a lot to figure out over the course of the year. And there is a little bit of a Spurs bump and a pop bump in terms of, you know, that's a, that's a franchise and a coach that really does tend to pull these things together over time. I just see it being a little more complicated uh, maybe than they even even assumed coming into, you know, the beginning of their offseason, given, you know, everything that happened with Marcus Morris and just the general the general makeup of this roster is just kind of hard to hard to see as being like a sure playoff team. Uh, the Pelicans, I think I'm probably on the higher end of the optimism of how all those pieces fit together. Uh, I just like, you know, when you're talking about so many up, kind of upside plays stacked on top of each other, whether it's, you know, how Ball and Ingram could be individually or hard if you want to include him in that group after their kind of, you know, off and on uh, stints in L.A., you know, what Zion and Reddit could potentially do for one another. I love the idea of bringing favors into this team. And Drew is just, you know, as rock solid as a guard as you'll find in this league. I kind of like them as the most certain of those three teams. Uh, and the Mavs, I think, you know, are, are very talented but very young. And I think their big man rotation leaves a little and, – and their small forward rotation, frankly, leaves a little something to yeah. be desired in a way that 
could kind of put them in, you know, a winning record, an impressive season, but maybe just on the outside looking in in terms of like, you know, a 9-10 seed. Yeah, that feels about right to me. I mean, for sure, Houston won Memphis 5. And then I could see all three of these teams are playing like that same New Orleans, San Antonio, Dallas in the 40 wins somewhere, I think. It is where New Orleans probably has the highest ceiling. I feel like I've always picked New Orleans above San Antonio for like three straight years, and it never never works out for me. Like the Spurs always find a way. The Pelicans under within Davis era always kind of underperformed. So I'm like leery of picking them, but I'll probably, I'll do it again and pick them again. But the Spurs, yeah, at this point, I'm, I always doubt them. They always find a way. It is hard not to feel like it's pop after he's been up for so long. And there's, there's still plenty of on the roster. So I'll say New Orleans, San Antonio, Dallas without much confidence. Yeah, it's it's tough, and I would say there are two things that work against San Antonio. That one is that I just think they're the least interesting, and so that leads sometimes to us undervaluing them just because we kind of know what they are, and because we don't necessarily know how the sausage is going to get made, but we kind of know it's going to become a, a sausage, you know, like that sort of a thing. Whereas with the Pels and the, the Mavericks, I think we have a much better idea. It's close. I mean, we're all in agreement on the one and the five, but I'm going to shift it a little bit. And so I said those things about New Orleans, about San Antonio, but they they always exceed expectations. I am a bigger believer. Like, so Rob's high on the Pels. I'm high on the Mavericks, and I I think that the offensive part of this they're going to figure out. And then we talked about Russell Westbrook and how you know he getting to play in a different system and all that. Kristaps Porzingis gets to play in an actual NBA offense, might actually get to play the five on defense, which I think is his best position, and gets to play with an NBA coach. And yes, there are serious concerns about his health, and there are serious concerns about, you know, just where he's going to be and everything like that. But I think that they're I think they're going to figure this out. So I'm actually going to go the opposite direction of you guys, and I'm going to go Mavericks two, Spurs three, and Pels four. I love the Pels. I think that they I like I, I like all these teams. I think all of them could make the playoffs, but but for me, when a team has this much uncertainty and has this much turnover, it feels like that first couple months when they're figuring things out might be enough of a stumble to keep them a little bit behind. And yeah, Dallas is turning over a lot of stuff, but it doesn't seem. It seems like their turnover is more within the system rather than New Orleans, where they have to figure out what the hell they are. Yeah, Danny, that's the point about Porzingis. I went back and looked at it in his three years in New York. I think his best point guard was Jared Jack. It's it's real. It was pretty gr- pretty gruesome. So I mean, I think that's the guy who could have a really big impact in Dallas next year for sure. So uh, Rob, start on the last question. So John, you can start on this one. And in some ways, this is an easier question because you don't have to rank the teams. But just how many how many teams in the Southwest make the playoffs? Oh man, let me look at the West real quick. Sorry, let me make sure I got all the right teams in my head. I mean, for sure, Houston will make it, obviously. And then there's probably, what, the LA teams, Golden State, Utah, Denver, Portland. That gets you to seven. I'm going to say two. And then probably I could see it come down to New Orleans for San Antonio for that eighth seed at the end of the season. So I'll say New Orleans might put them up San Antonio. But I'm going to say two teams make it from this division. Yeah, I'm thinking the same. I mean, I think it's it's in the one to two. That the, I think those are kind of the options. It basically depends on your mileage on teams like the Kings and the Wolves, who I think are the other contenders for maybe a last playoff spot. Because I think you're really looking at about six locks for the West. And so whether it's, it's the Rockets and it's whoever you have in that second spot, 
uh, that could really be considered. So I think I would lean towards two, but it would not shock me at all to see, you know, the Kings steal a spot away from whether it's the Pelicans or the Spurs or the Mavs. Yeah, that's that's kind of why I thought this question was a little bit easier than the last one is. I don't know who the second team is, but my expectation is that somebody will have a better season and they'll they'll work it out. And then probably one of those, that trio is going to get hurt and they'll fall off. And so then that'll leave maybe that third team, depending on health and success and all that, as being on the margins. But what what makes it also makes me more confident in two is just how the other two divisions in this have three teams that I like better than the second team in the Southwest. You know, like the Clippers and the Lakers and the Warriors and then the Nuggets, Blazers and Jazz. So even with OKC taking a step back, you know, like I think that it's like, so then that means you have seven teams that I just like, I'm I'm not super, you know, the Warriors have variants, all these teams do. But at that when healthy, I have above the second team in the Southwest. So, so then that means the second team is probably right in that mix. And I could see scenarios where it gets to three. I could see scenarios where it's one. But I don't really see many where it's four just because that requires either Memphis being way better than I expect or just these teams just all defying expectations. And it, it's really hard. I mean, even though teams only face their own division maybe one more time than everybody else it's just hard to imagine all three of that group succeeding in the same year one thing i'm curious for you out of here do you guys see ace making a big trade the deadline i mean i think a lot of it will come down to that playoff race where like dallas is a team that i think really wants to be in there and i could see i could see new orleans i could see kind of slow playing it san antonio doesn't strike me as necessarily like a big shake-up team uh, but of the of the teams in this division, I, th- I feel like Dallas and maybe Houston, if they could kind of cobble something together. But as we've talked about, there just are only so many pieces to move around. There are kind of the candidates to make a big a bigger uh, or at least more more relevant midseason trade. I just I do wonder if DeRozan becomes available if the whole thing with him and Dejounte doesn't work and they try to make it Dejounte's team. I do wonder if that becomes going to happen at some point this season. Well, that ties in with something I wanted to discuss briefly, which is there was a report, I think it was from Mike Finger, that the Spurs are negotiating a possible extension with DeRozan. And beyond the fact that I'm lower on DeRozan than a lot of people, that would be such a baffling decision for me because we don't know how that fit is going to work. And it, it sort of parallels the rookie, the extension, you know, the the rookie extension, rookie scale extension for a player who has had kind of three up and down years in the league and you're just not exactly sure what they're going to be. And so, like, it's so hard to come to an extension agreement because you would only do something that's pretty low to protect yourself from risk and all that kind of stuff. So I, I would be, if, if we hear that a deal comes down, first of all, the money will almost definitely be higher than I'd be comfortable with. But also, just why commit now is something else that I was thinking about. Speaking of that, like, what is Murray's extension going to be? He's up this summer, or up, I think, right now, right? He can get a, a deal. That is correct. DeJounte Murray and Jakob Pertl are both extension eligible this year. So you have those two and Brandon Ingram in this division that are all just, like, insane negotiations to consider. Yeah, I, I just don't think you can come to an agreement with DeJounte unless he's willing to just leave a ton of money on the table because you just don't know. I mean, the Spurs have access to significantly more information than we do because of practices and like all, there were there was all this buzz about DeJounte and his jump shot and everything else before he tore his ACL in the preseason last year. So the Spurs know all that and we generally don't, but it that still is just, it's so hard to, to come to an extension agreement with DeJounte. I think the tougher call is for DeJounte. 
Like if you're him, you just tore your knee. Does that make you more likely to take the money or do you gamble on yourself coming off an ACL, right? Because you tear that knee again, the money might not be there. So you might have to take a short deal now, almost like a, a Steph Curry kind of deal, right? Like possibly if you're really spooked about your knee. Yeah, that's a possibility. And it gets into like the Draymond Green extension where there's so much money in the league now where maybe it's possible that DeJounte just says, hey, if I can lock up, I don't like 40 or 50 million or something like, Hey, that's 40 or 50 million. No, like that's, that's enough money to set up my family for generations. And yeah, he could be leaving that much money on the table, but he doesn't know that for sure. And all that. So yeah, that, that would be the way it would happen to me would be him being more risk averse rather than the Spurs. Yeah. I mean, he's the number 30 pick or whatever. He has been a lot of money in his career. Relatively, obviously. Last question for the group, and we can start at this one with Rob. What players do you think are going to break out? And, and I don't mean necessarily becoming stars, because that's always a really hard thing to predict and, and everything else. It's just, who do you think we're going to be talking about significantly differently a year from now than we are at this moment? I mean, I know we talked about DeJounte Murray in this prompt a year ago. And as you mentioned, there was a lot of buzz in the preseason, or at least leading into the season, rather, uh, around him last year. I think he's definitely in this category again as a guy who has a lot to prove offensively, but is really, really interesting and already has that high-level defense we talked about. I think he's in this group. I think that some people are unrealistically high on Lonzo Ball after his Lakers tenure, but I think he's a guy who could be you know, really regarded as a nice contributor and a winning player uh, to a Pelicans team that I think could be pretty solid. So I think he's kind of in this category as the guy who could establish himself a little further than he has been able to because of his injuries. And I think Maxi Kleeb is another guy who we could look at at the end of the season and say he's really an important part of the Mavericks future uh, in a way that he's not necessarily talked about as being so now. Um, I'll just go with two guys I talked about earlier. I mean, I think number one, Seth Curry. I think if the Mavs have a good year, it's because he's in the mix for like the sixth man of the year. I think he could have that kind of offensive upside. And then I'm going to say Jaron Jackson. I think yeah, he was obviously like the hipster rookie everybody loved last year. But to me, he could be on the same level as Carl Towns with maybe better defense too. Like I, I see him as like going into that range. This guy's like definitely a franchise player at this time next, at this time next year. Like, man, He's the best young big in the league, possibly. Wow, that that's stronger than I, I had Jaron on my list, but I didn't. I don't think I was going to go there. But I love I love his game. I think that he could be a really good fit. And there's a place. I mean, Memphis just there's so much flexibility. Thankfully, it looks like they have their point guard of the future in Jaw. But they can go in so many different directions at the at the two through the five. And so to see what Jaron does and where they go with it, also the pick protection for Memphis is going to be fascinating. I had an, another group, one of which was mentioned already, which is the Oh Yeah, which is we just haven't talked about them because they've been hurt, and that's DeJounte and Porzingis. Like, I, it, it's been so long since Kristaps Porzingis played that I think people have forgotten how good he is. And depending on how healthy he will be this year, I think this could be the best Porzingis season just because he's actually going to have appropriate fitting talent. He's going to have a proper coach, everything like that. And I mean, this, he, he was insanely productive for the early part of his career. And I thought he was being m more misused than underused, you know, especially defensively. He's such a wonderful rim protector, but was always playing next to somebody else and couldn't defend in space. So I think this could be a real breakout for him. Also, like it's kind of a different category, but you know, like I could see Nikhil Alexander Walker having a really nice year and kind of off of the bench. I love Josh Hart. I've loved Josh Hart for such a long time, and maybe now getting out of the Lakers can can open things up for him. And I would love to see, and he just didn't do it enough for me, but like 
I could see Daniel House. Like it, it won't take much for him to really firm up a place in the in the Rockets rotation. I think they want to like him a lot. He just needs to be more consistent. And maybe if getting getting a real NBA contract and not doing that whole insane dance like he did for half of last year between the two-way and not the two-way if he can just be like 10 percent better it makes a world of difference for the rest of his career yeah the moment was too big for house last year and like going back to our houston conversation he's really one of their only wings with size so they like really really need him which is always good for a young player your team needs you because more room to, more room to make mistakes and i think a lot of times him was just confidence last year being a rookie being the first time on a playoff team it just felt like but that Golden State series, it was just too big for him in the moment. Maybe year two, he's a little more. The game has slowed down for him and it kind of comes into his own. I mean, one other guy in the oh yeah category, a much lesser caliber of it, who we just haven't talked about really at all, is Kyle Anderson coming back for the Grizzlies and kind of like, I mean, they they invested quite a bit in, in bringing him in and kind of what role he's going to play. Uh, I think he could remind some people that he exists and that he is a person in the NBA. <laughs> Well, and not along those lines because he wasn't hurt, but I would love to see I, – I really like Acapertal, and I think that he could be another reminder of this kind of the middle tier. Incidentally, Valanchunas is kind of in this group. Not that they have the same game, but they're kind of the same caliber of like you're happy they're on your team, but you probably shouldn't be paying them a lot of money. But there's a value to that. You know, just a he's he can be a really good offensive rebounder. I think he's more stable defensively than some give him credit for. And few coaches, if any, maybe Terry Stotts would be the better one that I can think of, are more comfortable using players like Pirtle defensively than Pop. So I think he could be talked about a little bit differently because he gets basically no attention now. And if he's a, you know, if he's maybe not the star, but if he's just a starter on a successful team, that's a pretty good place to be. I guess one more name too, um, Josh Jackson, number four pick in the draft. Oh, we'll see. I would love to see. I would love to see him do better. And Memphis do something. Do something. And yeah, Memphis has some. I mean, they have so much uncertainty. But assuming he's he makes it through, like the if assuming they get Jay Crowder and Iguodala off this team at some point, just because they should be somewhere better at some point, there will be minutes in their front court rotation. And some of those will probably go to Brandon Clark because they should. But Josh Jackson, I mean, he might as well get some of them because they should figure out what they have. And another guy who who I want to just mention, not as a breakout, but just because I just feel he's been underappreciated for a couple years, including by his own team, and that's Tyus Jones. I really like Tyus Jones. I think that he can be a stable backup point guard. And oh yeah, he's in this division too, because he's going to be John Morant's backup in Memphis. I'm a little bit disappointed nobody picked Grayson Allen, because I feel like I feel like he will win NBA Twitter at least like three nights this season. I, it just might not be for playing basketball. <laughs> I think winning NBA Twitter, like I, I can't remember who where this tweet originated from, but basically that there's like a winner of general Twitter every day, and the goal is to have it not be you. I feel like the winner of NBA Twitter is the same. Uh, winning yeah, NBA probably, Twitter is not always a good thing. <laughs> well, I mean, did did he get tossed from a summer league game, or like there was something ridiculous? Yeah, he happened. did. He got two flagrant fouls or something. He got ejected. <laughs> I, I did think that he looked a lot better in summer league this year. Like he looked more comfortable with the ball in his hands. And there's, I mean, Memphis has they have more openings in the rotation. Like, who, I'm going to be really interested on the Grizzlies. We, I, I feel like we haven't talked about them quite enough, except for except for the love for Jaron Jackson, which is well deserved. About just the the benefit of having a really open rotation is that you can give minutes to who, especially when you don't have the need to win right away, is they can like they can give minutes to whoever they want, whomever they want, and I I just genuinely don't know how this is going to turn out, but I like a lot of the pieces they have, so I'm excited about it. I mean, and getting to the point about like depth in the NBA, like 
they also have like Bruno Kabakla, who had a pretty good second half of the season. And he's still really young, too. Like, they've got a lot of young guys who are going to be fighting for minutes. It'll be interesting to watch them this year. We've already talked plenty, but if uh, if any of you guys have anything else that you want to discuss, of, uh, oh, yeah, we haven't talked about this. Feel free right now. Otherwise, we can end this. I mean, one name that hadn't came, hasn't come up even in our Pelicans discussion, which I think has been pretty extensive overall, uh, is Nicolo Melli, who is a guy who we obviously haven't seen in the NBA mm-hmm. yet. But if we're talking about how the Pelicans stretch and how they get Zion at the five, I think that is kind of a, a, an interesting part of that conversation. That's a good call. I was going to make a Ben McElmore joke, but there's a chance that he that if he's going to succeed anywhere, it's probably in Houston. But Melly's a really good call. Yeah, he could have a big. I mean, he's going to be a big time this year. I think that's a good call. Well, and you know, the Pelicans had lots of different ways they could go with that room mid level, and David Griffin chose him, so that that shows that he's going to get an opportunity, and that's important. And they, and they need somebody like Melly, so I could I could see it making sense. But thank you guys so much for taking time. Absolutely great talking with you guys. Always a pleasure, Danny. Thanks to Jonathan and Rob for taking the time to come on. You can read Jonathan Charks at The Ringer, and you can follow him on Twitter at Jonathan Charks, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-T-J-A-R-K-S. You can read Rob Mahoney at Sports Illustrated. You can also listen to The Breakaway Podcast. If you haven't already listened to it, it's absolutely fantastic. And most of the episodes age really well. So if you happen to have missed one or two or you just never got into the series, you should check that out. You can also, of course, follow Rob on Twitter at Rob Mahoney, R-O-B-M-A-H-O-N-E-Y. While it is still the offseason, and so that means that not as much is going on, Real Jam Radio is still a once-a-week podcast, which is why it's so important to subscribe and download every episode because there will be new content coming out every single week. And can also word of mouth if you like a specific episode or you like the podcast in general however you see fit social media in person whatever makes you happy really do appreciate it also leaving a review it's great if it's apple Podcasts. totally understand if you use a different player and if you want to be super awesome you can actually re- leave a review both places should you so choose really do appreciate that rating and reviewing and of course the single most important thing for this show and any other to show your support is to check out our sponsors for this episode that is betonline.ag and use that podcast one promo code when you sign up for a new account for a 50% welcome bonus. There will be a a new episode this next week. I have a couple of different ideas. It's just depending on guest availability in terms of which one happens when nothing is recorded yet, but I have some things lined up. So excited about that, of course. You can listen to Dunked On, Nate Nyers, still on a couple times a week, but lots of good stuff. We're doing finishing Western Conference summer league prospect analysis, and then we're going to do off-season grades. We had a new Patreon podcast out recently, and then my written work is going to start back up at The Athletic soon. I have a couple pieces that are kind of getting close to the submission phase, so we're getting closer just depending on when editorial wants to actually put them out, and so we're going to be working on that soon enough. If you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to share that with me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. I don't always promise that I'll respond, though I, I try to. You know, it's, it's something I like to do. But the promise is that I will read it because I don't want you to think that you're wasting your time and you absolutely are not. And I get stuff pretty regularly and do really do appreciate it. If you haven't listened to the Over Under podcast with Char Goletti, you can also listen to those. The lines keep changing and everything else, but there's a lot of, a lot of good analysis and kind of helping clarify my own thought process there as well. As I said, there will be a new episode next week. Don't know exactly what it'll be or when it will come out. That's why you subscribe. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.
Microsoft Surface Pro 8 has the power of a laptop and the versatility of a tablet, all in one. This thin and adaptable device has a touchscreen and a newly designed signature keyboard that can even store your Surface Pen. Surface Pro 8 is Microsoft's most powerful pro yet. Show the world how you stand out with Surface Pro 8. Check it out at surface.com slash Surface Pro 8. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you 24-7 with supplies and solutions for every industry and access to product specialists ready to help. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.